and welcome to the Highball Master Shot, where we have conversations about the process of making film. My name is Melissa D'Agostino, I'm your host, and it's my great pleasure to be able to facilitate a conversation today about adapted screenplays. Uh, I'm joined by this formidable panel of people, I'm so thrilled. Um, we have today um, award-winning film director Arturo Perez Torres, and uh, award-winning writer and uh, actress Susan Coyne, and uh, New York Times best-selling author Linwood Barkley. Thank you all for being here. Pleasure. Great to be here. Welcome. It's no secret that adapted screenplays are very popular right now. Everyone wants to make something that already has a source material, whether that's a novel or a play or a podcast even. So they're very hot right now, but I think it's also worth discussing them because it's a, a fascinating process. I've always been really interested in the process of taking something that already exists in its full form and then translating it to this medium. And you've all had such interesting trajectories getting to adaptation um, and different uh, parts of the industry and other industries, so uh, I'm very excited to have this conversation. I'd love to actually just start the conversation, if you could all sort of just speak to why you became a writer in the first place, what interested you about writing. Um, maybe, Lynn, would you want to give us a... Well, I mean, I, was, I started writing stories probably around grade three or four, and, and, and it kind of ties in with what we're talking about tonight, because I, you know, people expect you to say that you were inspired by Tolstoy or Dickens or something like that. And for me, it was television was what made me want to write because I had favorite TV shows as a kid and an episode a week wasn't enough for me. So I would take those characters and create my own stories with them. So by what we would call fan fiction today. So mm. around about the time I was in grade six, seven or eight, I was, you know, I was, I was writing 30, 40, 50 page novellas typed based on, on my favorite TV shows. And so it was, mm. it was really television that got me excited about wanting to write mm. um, when I was a kid. And, and, you know, as I got older, I thought, gee, maybe I could invent characters of my own instead of using somebody else's. And, and so I always wanted to write. Um, and I mean, I ended up having really a career in newspapers where you get paid money to write every day. And it's only been in the last 15 or so years that I've been able to kind of go back to what I wanted to do as a kid, which is to, just to tell stories, to write fiction. I relate to that. I used to write fan fiction about the soap operas I watched yeah. as a young teenage girl. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's a, so relatable, right? Yeah. We're so inspired by those, those stories we see all the time in our homes, right? That's great. Thank you for sharing that. Susan? I used to write a lot when I was younger, too. And then somewhere in probably middle school, I got the idea that I wasn't good at it or I mm. wasn't going to show it to anyone or something. One of those things happened where... Uh, it became a secret hmm. and and I became an actor instead and then was an actor for a long time but um, I got kind of frustrated with the acting business at a certain point so I started writing out of deep frustration and found that I really enjoyed it it was something that you know you don't have to wait to for someone to give you a job yeah so it became something that was as, as important to me or as, as enriching as being an actor at that point wonderful that's great and Arturo well, I'm not really a writer, I'm a documentary filmmaker, right. and um, I do write my documentary films, mm -hmm. which is very different than writing fiction. It's more, the way I see it, it's more about writing structure. So the last film I made, which is not a documentary, I adapted the, the screenplay into the, to the film, 
Um, the adaptation was not really writing the way I see it, it was more restructuring the play into a film. Mm. It was a bit of an editing job and uh, writing the structure, I would say. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. So the work you were doing in documentary just sort of folded into this narrative structure yes, now. Yes, yes. And we did, um, I take a different approach because I'm very, um, I don't feel very secure when writing, especially English is not my first language. So I feel like I cannot really write English dialogue. It's going to sound fake. It's going to sound like everybody's ESL. <laughs> so I get conscious, right? So okay. what I do, what I did for the drawer boy, I went and looked at uh, documentaries to, that were shot in that era, the time and the place, especially one, the Clinton special that Michael Ondaatje shot. Mm -hmm. and, um, and basically just lifted dialogue from the people that were there. Wow. Being interviewed or talking, and then when we recreated some scenes, it was just lifted dialogue from the scenes that people actually said in real life in the late 60s, early 70s. Right. So then we, again, structured the scene and then just used the dialogue for the characters that we had invented from one dialogue from here, one dialogue from there. So it was a bit of a making a little Frankenstein put together. Right. That's so cool because it's sort of then an adaptation of the play by Michael Healy, The Drawer mm -hmm. Boy, but then also the documentaries, and there were documentaries about The Farm Show, which was a, which another play, yeah, 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 the Clinton yeah, the, special, the yeah. Clinton special. So that's fascinating, because in a way it's an adaptation of multiple yeah. works. Wow, that's so cool. It yeah. was very fun. Yeah, sounds <laughs> like it. Um, and so just to, to continue on with The Drawer Boy, because um, I'm going I'm to ask how some, some of the projects came to be or came to you um, or how you got involved in them and I know this is different for all of you so uh, Arturo in terms of the drawer boy I know there's a, a bit of a fun story about why you chose that particular play to adapt because as you said you you had come from documentary filmmaking yeah. and so to step into your first feature uh, narrative feature in this way yeah. um, how can you share with us that that story sure. I find it delightful <clears throat> sure well, my partner is a theater uh, actor, and uh, she writes and directs also. And one day we were going to a party and we said, why don't we make a project together? You come from theater, you know actors, you know plays, and I come from the documentary world, which you know, you know a bit of the production of making a film. So we decided that we would make a, a movie based on a play because locations are limited, Plays are usually written for three or four stages. Mm -hmm. It's all indoors, so you don't have to worry about big production. It was all like this is amazing. It's usually three or four characters. So since we were aiming to shoot a very low budget movie, the play was fantastic. Right. And if you, we choose a, um, a, a screenplay that has already been proven, it's up to you to screw it up. Really, <laughs> it's there, right? Right. So we um, posted on Facebook. Um, what is your favorite um, Canadian play? And everybody started going and going. And, you know, people like to 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 contribute. <laughs> yes. And uh, we ended up with uh, the drawer boy winning. And um, we read like three or four of the finalists. And um, I've never seen seen or read the drawer boy, and I loved it because of my background as a documentary filmmaker, for mm -hmm. those who haven't seen the play or don't know. 
Um, Miles, the young character that arrives at the farm, he's a writer collecting stories to write a play about the stories he's collecting. So basically he's a documentary filmmaker without a camera. And the whole drama and the whole themes are about truth and when truth is represented, does it stop being truth? Which is topics that we deal with when we make documentaries all the time. Right. Yeah, I love that story. The, oh. like, the process of it. I heard <laughs> it Facebook once and I thought or... the Facebook part oh, okay. and the exactly documentary. Yeah, oh. and the documentary angle. Right. Well, because I think that's so interesting uh, in terms of like what goes into adapting something from one form to another. And yeah. I find your insight, I mean, having I knew that play, but I'd never thought about it in those terms. Right. And I think that speaks to you as a writer because uh, you it is writing, you know. Right. Um, Linwood, I want to talk to you uh, about Never Saw It Coming because there's a project where you had written this, you know, highly successful novel. And so how did it come to pass that um, you made it into a screenplay? Well, it was kind of funny. It was, we had, uh, uh, my wife and I bought a place, a getaway place in Prince Edward County in Ontario. And we had a, uh, someone who I had worked with at the Toronto Star years ago, uh, a woman named Gail Harvey, also mm -hmm. has a place there. And Gail and I worked together at Star when I was an editor there and she was a photographer. And in the time that all these years since we'd sort of gone our separate ways, she'd become a very accomplished director of film and a lot of television and, and a documentary on Ricky Lee Jones and so forth. So we got, you know, we reconnected and over dinner one night she said, do you have some book that has not been optioned or something? And, mm -hmm. and I said, I've got this shorter novel that's almost like a Coen Brothers thing in a way. And, and so I gave her that to read and she loved it. She said, would you be willing to write a screenplay for it, adapt your own book, and basically on spec while I go hunting for money, she says. And I said, sure. So it was great. And I, I can't imagine I'll ever have, have a, this kind of process again that goes so well. Mm. Because, you know, there was really not a lot of people involved. It was Gail, there was me, there was, you know, some people looking for funding and a producer and so forth. But, but I wrote that, and uh, and I wrote the screenplay in nine days. And, mm. and it was interesting. I think what's... And of course, I have the advantage of the fact that I'm familiar with the source material. Right. You know, I wrote the book, yeah. and so it's not like I had to think, well, how would how would the author of this want this to be interpreted? Well, I, you know, that part was okay, and so I took I, I I did a screenplay of it in nine days. And the other thing that I guess made that easier, what, knowing the story, is that at, at some point I kind of just threw the book away mm. because I thought I know the story, and if I try to go through the book and think. Well, I need to get this scene, or I, how do I adapt that page of dialogue? And I finally went, and I kind of stopped looking at it because I thought, well, I know the story, I know it's what the essence of it is. Let's tell that story in this different kind of form. Hmm. And so, and and I think there was about a day's worth of tweaks on it. You know, Gail said, I think we should do this and that, and uh, and off it went. Wow. And any experience that I've had since then in doing that kind of work has not been that way. <laughs> it's, you know, there's only about 75 people who want to weigh in with their suggestions. Right. Oh, please, can I have another, you know? <laughs> so that's how that came about. And, and against, I think, sort of extraordinary odds, the movie got made. Gail found the money. We got Emily Hampshire and mm -hmm. Eric Roberts to be in it. And, and it all got shot up in Sudbury. And, and uh, it was it was a great experience, you know. It was a it's a it's a very modest budget, um, but I'm really proud of it. I think it's a I think it's a nice it's a nice little thriller. Mm -hmm. And so, in that process of sort of throwing away the book at a certain point, um, how much then did the screenplay 
um, differ from the book? Or did you find suddenly that you could explore new things inside of that world that you hadn't explored in the book? It's actually, that particular screenplay is pretty close to the book. Okay. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of, you kind of take the book and it's, it's like you're panning for gold or whatever. You kind of sift through and you, you get it down to its essence and tell that story. And, and so it's not too different. I mean, more recently I've been involved in an adaptation of a trilogy of books I wrote that I call the Promise Falls Trilogy. And in the process so far, we're making tremendous amount of changes, but I'm involved and I'm kind of okay with that because what I'm finding is maybe we should do it this way or that way. And I'm thinking, if I had thought of this particular thing to do with the story when I was writing the books, I would have done that. And so if it gets made into a series, this is an opportunity to take sort of that jumping off point that the books were and do things that are even more interesting. So I don't feel that's sacred. You know, I think if we right. can take this idea and build on it and do something different, then I'm okay with that. And so Susan, uh, you've worked on several projects that are based on or adapted from books. Most recently, you worked on The Man Who Invented Christmas, mm -hmm. uh, which was based on the book of the same name by Les Standiford. Um, so how did that uh, come to be? And did you uh, seek that out or did they seek you out or how did that come to happen? Uh, they came to me. I'm still not quite sure how they found me. <laughs> uh, and it's, uh, it's an unusual one in that it's a non-fiction book that I turned into a pretty highly fictionalized. It's very much based on the real story mm -hmm. of how Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol in six weeks. Right. But uh, it's not very dramatic, e even to other writers, to watch people writing the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's always that challenge of finding a way to make the internal external. So at some point, um, I had the idea of the characters coming to life. and mm -hmm. Because actually, a lot of it, it's a weird thing, because a lot of it is actually based on truth. He, he was the kind of writer who really did kind of see his characters and mm -hmm. interact with them. And he was sort of a failed actor. So that gave me the idea that this was, 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 a, was fair game in a way. It, it had some basis in how he actually thought. So that's, it was a lot, and there were, I lost count of how many drafts. Probably 20. Right. Uh, at one point we thought, because we were having trouble, we, we got stars, they left, you know, they mm. got bigger jobs, they, um, we went, every, we thought, could it be a musical, you know, right. <laughs> and to try and find a way to tell the story, and somehow it all came around in the end. But. Right. So in a, a similar way to speaking with Arturo, it's sort of like you were adapting the book, but also sort of taking into account him as a figure, Dickens as a figure. Yeah, and I was sort of... really just grabbing stuff. I mean, I did, because um, I do love research, I read millions of books about the Victorians and, and Dickens and sort of pillaged his novels for these best lines of dialogue. I'm shameless about stealing stuff that I thought would be Great. good for, um, for this particular it's sort of story, which is which is a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but also I really wanted it to be well-researched and actually grounded in the world, the proper world. Like, so is it hybrid in that way? But. Right. Mm -hmm. And how do you start that process? Like how, when you're approaching, you know, that you're adapting this book, mm -hmm. because I think, I'm sure you all, every, every writer has a different approach to this, but I'm always so curious about you know, what is that first step? Do you work from an outline? How much does it differ from if you were just writing something not based on, on uh, another piece of source material? Like, what's your first step there? An outline, a yeah. kind of prose outline, just so you can feel what it feels like is how I usually start. 
um, because uh, you could get well for one thing you can you know if you're adapting um, something that's already existing as a novel you, you know you, you can fall in love with all the details but you really have to find the story mm -hmm. and, and that's the first job that I find this like where not just the plot but where's the emotional through line is really what you're looking for so where is this character where do they start from and who are they going to be at the end of this and how are they going to get there kind of you know those kinds of character based for me always very character based questions mm -hmm. and how about for you Arturo did you what was your first step in moving from the play into the screenplay um, I did some research, basically watched a bunch of movies that had been plays that were made into films. Mm. And uh, the one thing that I found in every one of them, even the ones that are amazing, was that at some point I would start getting claustrophobic. Mm -hmm. I would start being like, I want to see the air, I want to see the, not the air, the sky, I want to be outside. A lot of these movies uh, happened within an apartment, in a theater, and then they stay there. So um, that was kind of like one of the changes that I wanted to do. I read a thousand times the script, and it's like, what scene can we get outside? What scene can we get rid of? What scene can be um, cut into and made it in the moving instead of talking at the table, actually? what's going to motivate them to walk to the barn and actually have that dialogue. So you would physically feel the air and the sky and the sun, mm -hmm. which is, that's what it sounds a little insignificant, but it's quite important, I think, to avoid that claustrophobic element. Um, and Linwood, did you find um, any freedom in, or what attracted you to the uh, the format of film. I loved the whole notion of writing a screenplay. I mean, when you write a novel, I mean, you feel you know there's 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 backstory and there's inner dialogues and there's you know three pages of what someone's thinking before they make a decision. And when I turned came to a screenplay, I thought I don't need any of that. I can just get rid of all of it. And it just kind of was. I thought it was kind of liberating. It's like, I don't have to give you everything. I don't have to tell you every single thing. I have to, I have to try to, through, through actions and words, communicate as much as I can in a kind of a shorthand way. Um, so in a lot of ways, I mean, you can, you can kind of blather on forever in a novel. I was learned very quickly that in a screenplay, you have to be able to justify every single word Every single line, there has to be a reason for it. It has to contribute in some kind of way. Mm -hmm. And it needs to impart information or, or, or what the character is like or, or something. And so, uh, but I liked that. I thought that was really I kind of, it was kind of liberating. I didn't have to give you all this other stuff. I just have to give you what matters. And, and I think that's what I, what I really liked about doing it. You didn't, you didn't mind, because um, I think novelists sometimes have trouble with like, Oh my God! I have to do all the exposition and the dialogue. Did you? Did you? You didn't. That didn't bother you. The, the dialogue. Yeah. yeah well, see, everything has to. Ha we have to find out what we need to know about the characters through the. Through the well, the thing is that that part was for me wasn't as as difficult because my own novels are pretty dialogue heavy. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. I, I I mean, if I could just write novels that were almost entirely dialogue, I'd be happier anyway. Mm -hmm. So that so the writing of a screenplay was 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 really a joy mm -hmm. in that sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, I can't, there's nothing I hate having to write more than long-winded paragraphs of description. Oh, I, I hate that stuff. 
you know, I love people like Elmore Leonard who said who used to say he would say before that God bless him, he was such a great writer. He'd say, I don't write the stuff that people skip anyway. <laughs> you know, that, that paragraph is the detectives driving up the laneway to the house and they describe the gardens and the house. So, you know, I don't care. Then you get to the part where you meet the guy who's hiring the detective and then you read the dialogue and you get into it. Right. So I, I'm happy to leave out all that other stuff and let, you know, an art director and a director have to figure out what we'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that part of it I just loved. Mm. Yeah. Was there anything uh, that you were sad to not include in the screenplay that was in the book? Were there any moments of longing for... Um... No, at least not in that. Um, there's another approach I've ever worked on for about six months, based on another one of my books, there was that there was a lot to try to pack into, uh, say, a, a you know, 45 or 50 minute episode. Mm-hmm. Um, that you think, oh, I'm going to have to lose this, or I'm going to have to lose that. But not so much. And it's funny, when, I, when we did... Um, the movie never saw it coming. There's a scene right near the end where Emily Hampshire's character says something to this low-life boyfriend and while well, she's doing something rather terrible to him. And I had written all this dialogue for it. And Gail got in touch and she said, Emily, the actress, said, I don't think I need to say anything mm. because when you see it, you realize it doesn't need any words. And I said, she's right. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's get rid of it. Mm. Um, and I think that's the thing you sometimes like you forget when you're actually writing a, the screenplay, you think you need all those words and you're forgetting that people are going to see images, they're going to see stuff. Right. And, and, and Emily Hampshire was right, we didn't need any dialogue then. Hmm. Mm-hmm. That's so cool. I know for you, Arturo, because you also directed it with mm-hmm. Aviva, you co-directed mm-hmm. it. Um, can you speak a bit about how it changed or morphed? Did it did it change a lot on set or did you really follow sort of the script and... and... It changed a uh, a little bit, a little bit. Mostly, um, we tried to find where there was... In the play, there's a lot of exposition. There's the characters that come and, for example, one comes from rehearsal and explains what happened in rehearsal and how he got in trouble with his director. So every time in the screen, in the play, there would be a situation like that, we would assess it and be like, can this be cut or can it be shown instead of told? So if it was too expensive, we would try to find a way to cut it. And um, if it was possible, then instead of telling it at the table, we would recreate that scene. So um, that was kind of like the approach. And we ended up recreating three scenes that have other characters that are not in the play that they talked about in the play only. Right. This became real, so we didn't need the guy telling, this just happened to me. We actually saw that that happened to him. Mm-hmm. So it becomes more um, energetic, more dynamic, as opposed to retelling. Yeah, showing and not showing. Telling. Exactly. Yeah, cool. And Susan, I'm curious as well, because I know you work on Mozart in the Jungle, which the concept of that show is based on a book. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm curious, um, in terms of episodic, how much do you, episode to episode, go back to that source material, or is it just that... The, the concept is based on that, and then the show becomes its own entity. In, in that case, the, the book was uh, distant memory. It was okay. very much as a jumping off point. Uh, some of the characters came from there, but it really became its own thing mm-hmm. quite early on. Right. And in terms of some of the other adaptations you've worked on, say with um, Anne, for, Anne of Green Gables, um, 
how closely did you work with the source material there? Or what was that process like? Because that's also mm -hmm. quite a, um, mm -hmm. you know, a book we all have, uh, most of us have a relationship mm -hmm. to. So what was that process like? Well, you know, I read somewhere um, Emma Thompson talking about her her, her first adaptation was, was um, it wasn't Prime Prejudice, it was this Sense and Sensibility. Right. And she said, I just decided to put everything in there, and then I, then I started taking it out, huh. which is one way to go about it. <laughs> right. And it's not a bad way, because in a, in a sense, you don't really know. And it's, it's one way of really getting to know the material as you're dramatizing it and thinking, what is that scene, and why is that there, and how can I, can I does it need to be there, is that the story I'm telling? So. I think in a way I did that with the Anne movies uh, and then it started to evolve, it started to show you what it needed to be and we invented things and this, you know, it's, it's it, it, in, a, in a classic you really need to respect hmm. the book because people love that book and they want to come and have that experience of it and, and you want to, it's interpretive the way being an actor is, you know, you want to bring your best version of what that book is to life and mm -hmm. still have, you know, a modern sensibility. So we thought a lot about the language and how to make it feel very, like you weren't jarred by it feeling too modern, but at the same time it didn't feel antique. Mm -hmm. That's another mm -hmm. challenge when you're adapting a, 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 the same problem with the Dickens movie. It was trying to make it feel fun and Victorian, but also not something too fusty or too precious that way. So mm -hmm. Different kinds of challenges, right? I think you know. I think that you, the two key words here are that you said are, it's source material. Is the book or the play or is a source material to then create something new, something mm -hmm. different, or you know that's inspired by that. And you know, I mean, people are often so upset, or they expect authors to be upset when the movie or the TV show differs from from the written pro, the written book. But I think that you know that the a director's obligation is to produce the best movie or TV show they can, not just make the author happy. Hmm. That that's really the, is the goal. I mean, there's a fabulous thriller writer named Harlan Coben, and he has this wonderful discussion about how Hollywood and, and books and so forth, and he describes the process as you take your book and you throw this thing over a wall, <laughs> yeah. and on the other side of the wall are the producers, and they attach a check to a rock. <laughs> and they th and they throw it over the wall, and you get that, and you both walk your separate ways. And he said, that's pretty much is the process. And, and I think a lot of authors, if they're not too full of themselves, are kind of okay with that. Because there's another, another great crime writer, a guy named Mark Billingham, who I really love his stuff. And, and Mark, you know, people say, well, the TV show wasn't like the book, and they ruined the book. He said, no, they didn't ruin the book. The book still exists. Mm -hmm. right. You can still read the book, right. yeah. and yeah. it's there. So yeah. if it's the movies or TV shows different, that's we can live with that. Right. Yeah, that's great. That's mm. a cool perspective. And you've had uh, one of your other books was made into a series, and yeah, yeah and that was for, by other screenwriters. Is yeah. That well, right? of course, I had to. That, I've, I've uh, my novel, The Accident, was made into a six-part TV series in France, mm -hmm. and of course, um, I not being particularly adept at the French language, I mean, nobody asked me to write the screenplay. And of course, they changed the setting and they changed the names of the characters and so forth. But the adaptation is fantastic. Mm. I mean, they followed the story just as I wrote it, and, mm. and they did a beautiful job on it. And another one of my books has just been optioned for a series over there as well. And they did a really nice job mm. of it. And, and uh, so 
I'm very happy with it. I, it's, I, there wasn't anything I could do with it except go over there and watch them film it for a couple of days, right. and and uh, and it was really well done. So I was I was pleased. So I mean, I'm sure there's lots of you know that's not necessarily the the uh, the rule. You know, a lot of authors are just really unhappy with what happens to their books. But this was a this was a good experience. Right. Yeah, that's good to hear. Um, and how does it differ? I know Susan, you've written. Um, other narrative work that isn't adapted from specifically another source piece of source material. I know Slings and Arrows came from an experience or came from um, the source material, I suppose, of a, of a small town Shakespeare festival and your experience there. But um, how does your process differ in terms of you know, how you approach writing something that isn't an adaptation? Do you still work from an outline and do the same sort of If, I, if it's not an adaptation? Yeah. Do you find it a, a very different process or just a, a slightly different process? It's slightly different in that, again, I get, and this, I think, comes from being an actor, too. Mm. Y you know, as an actor, you, um, in order to play a character, you need to know whatever you need to know about that character, whatever you decide you need to know, whether it's something about the history or the setting or just to live inside that character. And it's the same with writing, as I say, the adaptation, I find myself doing, I'm doing one right now set in 1950 in England, and I'm completely immersed in films from that period and from books, and uh, because you just want to live in the world to, in order to write it mm -hmm. from the inside. Right. You, know, you want to take the book and have it feel like it's your own story. So in a way, the Quite similar in the end. You have to bring characters to life from the inside. You have to understand how they work and how they look at the world. And so it, it's similar in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, what I hear in that too is a sort of sense that all writing in some respects is an adaptation of something, mm. whether that's a, a sort of an event or an experience or mm -hmm. um, there is Taking an, something from life and making right. it now become mm. a story. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, that, that resonates with me. That makes sense. And I feel like Linwood, for you coming from, you know, news and from uh, reporting, um, how did that, how do you feel that that really has impacted the writing you do now? Well, yeah, I spent 30 years working in newspapers. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I mean, Occasionally, I've actually written things that sort of draw on experience of having worked in that world. But I think more than anything, having worked in newspapers has affected my work ethic and how I do what I do. Um, you know, for I mean, you don't have the luxury. I mean, people always people are always the, the first question writers often get asked at events is, "What about writer's block?" And I think. What's writer's block? Do plumbers get plumber's block? Do teachers get teachers? <laughs> why, why, are, why are we so special right. that of all the professions, we can say, oh, I can't, I, you know, I have the vapors, I can't work today. And so I get up in the morning and I just go to work. I just start work, working because the newspapers, if you're, as a columnist, if you were to call your editor and say, I'm just not feeling it today, you know. <laughs> I'd say, well, don't feel it at another paper, you know. So I think more than anything, it's it's it means I work quickly, mm -hmm. and I treat writing not as a kind of sort of you know thing where you wait for the muse to strike. Writing is a job, mm. and so I, you know, I when I'm writing a book, my goal is to sit down and do two thousand words a day if I can do that, and, and so it's a job, 
and and I've just and I sort of work quickly and and so, for example, when I was I was involved in another project a couple of years ago with a guy named Martin Campbell who, among other things, directed Casino Royale. He wanted to make a six-part series out of one of my books, and there would be these long phone calls where they would go through every page of the script and make one of them have changes. I'd be on a conference call, and so when I got off the phone, I would just do them and I would send it to them the next day, and they would say, "What are you doing?" Like they were expecting it in like a week. I thought, how could anything like that take that long? And I said, this is the only way I know how to work. When you spent 30 years in newspapers and you're supposed to turn stuff around within minutes or, or at least hours, that's the only way I know how to work. Wow. Yeah, fascinating. Um, and Arturo, you've talked a little bit about how directing, I know Susan's talked about how acting has sort of influenced her work as a writer, and you've talked a little bit about documentary filmmaking influencing you, but I'm curious, in adapting this screenplay, or sorry, this play into the screenplay, um, sort of once you once you figured out the structure of it and you had that dialogue, did you ever go back to the, the source material or did you just let it become sort of the thing it was? Did you let the documentary aspect of it or the observing I, aspect of I it take over? I think so, yeah. I think, um, again, I call it more of an editing job. The play was very much a comedy, which um, I wanted to make a documentary that felt more like reality. Mm -hmm. So a lot of uh, dialogue that was too comedic was cut and um, it didn't pass the reality filter, let's call it. Okay. So everything was, uh, on paper, everything was put through that filter. What doesn't sound real? What sounds like a joke? Which was great for a play, you right. know, because it's a play and we all know that we're in a theater. But I wanted to emulate uh, reality like a real farm and uh, give it that drama that it's really happening. Right. So in that sense, that was the first thing we did on paper. And then with the actors, same thing, you know. Everything's very dry. No one played the joke, quite the opposite, because it's hilarious. But it's hilarious when, I think in film, it works better when you don't push the joke. As in theater, you maybe have to give it a little push. Right. Right? So, yeah, um, sure. I think those were the basic differences. Yeah, and that sounds to me, too, like the experience of um, observing, watching it happen, and letting the humor come out of that, yeah. as opposed to trying to make the humor happen. Exactly. Um, which also, to me, speaks a lot to your documentarian mm -hmm. sensibility. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, once you get used to shooting documentaries for many years, like I have, and editing some of them, you kind of get an ear for for real dialogue. Right. And when you hear something that is written, mm. not as real, it kind of like something goes off in your ear. You're like, wait, what is this? Yeah, you so can snap helps. it out. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but that cool. must be interesting to go from doing a documentary. To, I mean, a documentary... I, I mean, I guess you have to let it happen mm -hmm. as opposed to making it happen. Yes. Whereas when you're doing it, at doing something like that, you might feel more inclined with Drawer Boy to sort of make things happen. But if you, even with that kind of let it happen, it will feel more natural, I, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you balance, I'm curious, Susan, when you're working from source material, how do you balance, as you were saying before, when you're working with a classic, you really want to honor people's relationship to that mm. book, say Anne of Green Gables, or Charles Dickens, or our perception of Charles Dickens. Um, how do you balance that with 
wanting your own voice to come through or your own instincts and, and your rhythms as a writer? Like, are you conscious of that when you're writing or are you really just inside of the material and letting it flow? Well, I guess that's why I spend so much time kind of immersing myself in it. Then I hope that, again, like when you step out on stage and you think, well, this is my best version of the play and what I think the character is. But um, I, come, I, I did wobble a bit with the Dickens one because I thought, Oh, you know, who am I to be writing about putting dialogue in Charles Dickens' voice? Right. I was about a day of, like, anxiety, and then I thought, well, they're paying me. It's not like he's going to complain. No, he's not going to complain. <laughs> That's too bad that what's he, he died. What's he going to do? Right. Unless you start being haunted by the ghost of Charles I Dickens' past. I was feeling a little bit of that, but I was also like, you had your chance, so right. it's my turn now. Yeah. You have to be a little bit irreverent at some point. You do have to, at some point, if you were slavishly uh, faithful, it wouldn't probably be much good to the project. You actually do have to sort of step out at some point. But I, I like to know the moment when I'm, or at least it's, I like it to be sort of organic, the moment where you think, okay, now I know why I'm moving this way and I'm taking this and I'm making this scene. And I understand the spirit of what I'm doing now. So mm -hmm. I feel I can play now. Right, great. Yeah, because I suppose, like, I guess my question would be, what is your favorite part of adapting something from one form to another? What's, what's the thing that gets you excited about it? I'll say to one extent, some of the heavy lifting has been done in terms of the structure. Not as much as you think, because when you get in there, it's like, oh, I have to, it's actually, <laughs> this will be a breeze. <laughs> right. But actually you find you have to make these bridges, you have to, you know, but at least it gives you an optimistic feeling that there's a beginning, middle and end that you can, and you're not having to completely invent all that. So that, so, and that if you love the material, then there's also that sense of feeling happy to go into that world mm -hmm. every time when you sit down to write and you, you think, well, it worked on paper, at least it's not just me here. It's, other, there's other, there's things that I'm working with, and the material is there. Mm. Great. Linwood? I think a lot, I, two things I think that are really exciting. One is when you're writing it, you, you're seeing it. You know, I, like when I'm, whether it's a book or whether it's a screenplay, when I'm writing it, it's playing like a movie in my head. I can see it's happening. And, and that part is, is great fun. And then the second part that's great fun is if it actually gets made, is seeing it actually happening, mm. and you start, and you see this this real set and these actual people, and they're actually saying these things that you wrote. And a lot of times, you know, I, I don't often have an exact image of the characters. I mean, I have a sense of them and so forth, but I don't actually see them as oh, this guy looks like so and so or whatever. And then you see somebody saying those lines you've written, you think they're perfect. Like that's, mm -hmm. that's, that must be a, that sort of is, I think how I saw it, but you, mm. but it's, it's seeing it actually happen. And you think, yeah, it's like the dreams realized, you know, it's actually happened. Mm. Yeah. That sounds so magical. And they're taking that. ownership as though they wrote it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> how dare they? <laughs> right. And they get their name on the poster that's figure. Right. Is that's that fair? Right. Yeah. So many good questions coming up. Uh, Arturo, do you have, what was your favorite yeah. thing? Um, I think to me it was a bit like remodeling a house, like you already like the house and let's say that you bought if you have some money, especially in Toronto, and then um, you get to paint the walls a different color, you make to make, get to make it beautiful 
and you know that it's already there, it's already standing, so you're not really that responsible for it to fall or not, like what you were saying, just the bones are there. But you still get to have so much fun and make it yours. Mm. I love that analogy because mm -hmm. that's how I often describe writing a novel is that the first draft is putting the house up and mm. it's up and it's and it's you know it's standing there and then the second draft is going in and decorating the rooms right. and nice. putting in the furniture and rearranging them and so forth but even when someone adapts your work or takes it I think it's you know you gave them the house now they're kind of redecorating inside but you still built the house and even yeah. if they make some changes to it you can still take ownership of it that, that you did create that yeah. and they wouldn't and they wouldn't even be able to tinker with it if you had not created this this thing in the first place right you know yeah that's beautiful do you have any advice for anyone watching this listening who is considering adapting something or even just considering sitting down to write a novel or to you know to to write what would you say what would you give as, as a piece of advice to people sitting down to that blank page? You know, you asked a question mm -hmm. about how I started in writing. Mm -hmm. And I suddenly remember that there was a book. I, I remember sitting in the ROM, in Druxies in the ROM, with our mm -hmm. little children running around. My friend said, you know, I'm, a friend of mine has a book. And she named the book, and we a book we loved. And she does. She just wants someone to help her write a treatment because she has no money. And I said, we can do that because we love. We both loved the book. And of course, not knowing anything about it, we didn't write a treatment. We wrote 150-page screenplays. We didn't know. You know, that's how you write a treatment when you're just starting out. Mm -hmm. And I learned so much doing it. We didn't end up writing the screenplay for it, but I learned so much doing it because I loved the book so much, and it really made me think about. Well, you know, it really drew me in. How would you make this book into a screenplay? So I think, you know, love of something is always a good place to start. Sure. If it's, you know, whether it's, you know, in a way, it didn't matter that it didn't get made or I didn't get paid for it. It was really just that I, t I discovered that I liked writing, doing that. Yeah. I, that I liked sitting alone in a chair and just my own thoughts. So yes. that might be one way to go. That's great. Yeah, because I think sometimes we can get really bogged down in... Ooh, the technique of it or mm. the right way it yeah. gets presented or the way that it yeah. gets optioned or sold or all the sort of businessy things. I wouldn't read a book first. Right. I would start first. Yeah. And then oh. figure out what you need to know after that. That's great. Yeah, start first. I like that. That's great. Any other advice? You know, I probably get maybe one email or something a week about somebody wanting advice on becoming a writer. <laughs> <laughs> and... And of course, every single writer I know has had a different path. So it's kind of hard to give very specific advice. And if somebody writes and among their questions are, do you triple space and how wide are the margins? I think, this isn't for you. This is not, if these are your questions, this is not for you. Right. But, and, and, uh, and I, and I, it's very hard to give advice, but I always feel like, and I go to myself as an example, if you want to be a writer, you're probably already writing. Right. Like I was starting in grade three or four. So if you're thinking, I just like to be a writer, how would you go about that? It's not for you. And and the only other and the other advice, and I'm not the first to give it, is if you want to be a writer, you have to be a reader. And and you know, people say, well, I'd really love to be a writer, but I don't have much time to read. Well, it's like a, I, a, I want to be a chef, but I don't enjoy eating that much. Right. Yeah. Right. You know? So I think well, that's not for you. So it's very hard to give advice, but I think if you're if you're a writer, you're writing, and you're reading. 
And that's the first, I mean, if you're not doing that, forget the rest. Right, good advice. I would just add, uh, work with um, really hard uh, uh, deadlines on yourself. Yeah. It's, it's hard because sometimes you think it's, uh, or a lot of people think it's more about art. And you, that happens to me too, you end up spending too much time fighting over one word or two words, which at the end it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. If you have your structure and just put hard lines and work towards those deadlines, that's much easier and you'll get done faster. Yeah. Like house building. Yeah, like house building. I like how people think it's glamorous. Oh yes. It's just such gla it's just wow. Mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> like, like if you like if you Let's watch that, that if you watch the <laughs> if you watch the series The Affair and he becomes a writer, and he's going, and this one, and now he's at an orgy, and now he's sleeping with his agent. And I was, and I think, I said, yeah, that's, that's pretty much my life. That's what happens to me. Do you just point people to that series and say, that's what my life is? That's right. Like, when, that's when, when there was a part where he was, he was going to end up sleeping with his publicist, an editor I know said, most publicists that I know don't want to sleep with their authors. They want to kill them. <laughs> that's more realistic. That's great. And do you find that you're still, um, do you, when you're starting a new project, do you get plagued? I know you talked about writer's block not being a thing that, you know, that, that we have the luxury to have, but do you find it challenging to start a new project? Do you find that starting is easy and then you get sort of partway through and then you hit a block? Do you have a pattern? Or, or do you really find it as you've written that it's easy to step into a new project? I find every time I finish one, finish a book, I think I could never do this again. Interesting. Like you just think, I'm, I'm spent. I've used up every idea I ever had. I can never do this again. And, and then in about two weeks, I think, oh, I have an idea. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, but I find that it doesn't get, I mean, I've done about 20 novels now, and I find it doesn't get easier. Uh, the challenge is, well, what can I do that's bring something that's fresh or that's different and not do exactly what I did before? I mean, I want to do the things I did before that people like, but I don't want to do the exact same story. So I find, and I find every every book I've done, I've learned something hmm. new that I think, oh, I won't make that mistake again. <laughs> and then in the next book, I make a new mistake. Right. So it, for me, it doesn't get easier. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm a procrastinator. <laughs> uh, I have to trick myself into starting. Uh, and I have a number of tricks over the years now to start. And one of them is just like, just write one terrible line. <laughs> That's all you have to do. And as soon as you start writing, rewriting, you go, oh, I don't know how to fix this. Well, uh, there's only one thing I know how to fix. There's only, oh, so I'll do that. <laughs> yeah. And you trick yourself because you start, oh, that, well, actually, that could be better. And so I, I'm not sort of, um, I'm not a cheerful writer until I'm into it. Um, right. But then when I get into it, I like it. But uh, starting is hard, I find. I like how much that mirrors. The Charles Dickens' experience it's a in that personal. film. Yeah, it's a little personal. It ended up being quite a personal film. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I was as you were describing it. I'm like, hmm, yeah, yeah, that yeah, seems yeah. familiar. Yeah, yeah. What's wrong with you? To me, I would just say that um, every time I finish a project, whatever project it is, I am totally ready to to never see it again. Mm -hmm. Like almost nauseated by it. Mm, like yeah. if you the equivalent of having let's say, Indian food for two months, even though you love it, but if you have it for two months, at the end you don't want to see Indian food for six months. Right. So I'm very happy to go to a new project and have Italian food or mm -hmm. Chinese food, whatever, and then be like, I don't want to taste that 
paste anymore right. for a long time. Yeah. So do, yeah. <laughs> do you do you guys find that you're the the worst judge of your own work? That you you lose perspective and you can't you don't know anymore if it's good or terrible or what? Yeah, yeah. definitely. All the time. Yeah. Mm. I take stuff out that I've decided is terrible, and the producers say, "Why did you?" take that out. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm not, I, I don't know how you can be. It's two different parts of your brain. And yeah, I think mm -hmm. you get so close to it that you know, you can't, you no longer can see what's not working, but you don't even see what is it's working. working. It's true. You just, you it's just, you're, you need you're good too close for too long. Good editors. Yeah. yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Do you have people that you tend to uh, work with or ask for feedback from? I know sometimes you're working in a setting where you're working with a particular set of producers or other stakeholders in the project, but personally, when you're working on something, are there people you like to send it to to get feedback on who you trust or who understand your work? Is that a, is that a part of your process at all? I find, well, I'm, of course, I'm still a newbie in terms of the adaptations and working in, in movies and television, but I find that in that field, there's no shortage of people who are willing to offer advice. <laughs> uh, but when you're writing, most of my experience in the last 15, 20 years has been writing novels, which is a very solitary process. And I do have a couple of people. Well, the first person usually who reads my book is my agent, and I have a friend that I've, uh, I used to work with at the Toronto Star, uh, a guy named Bill Taylor, I often send him my book to read first yeah. and get his sense of it. Mm -hmm. And um, but it's just it's a long time to spend with something. You know, it takes me two three months to write a first draft. It's a long time to spend, and you think if you made a mistake the first week you started writing and went off in the wrong direction, there's a lot to fix. Mm -hmm. You hope if you make a mistake, it's sort of towards the end. Mm -hmm. But um, but yeah, you once you're done, you really need some some input. Mm -hmm. And how do you manage? all of those voices coming at you when you are working on a project with many opinions and notes and do you have a strategy for dealing with that, you know? Again, training as an actor, you're used to taking notes right. and sometimes very confusing notes. <coughs> so I always, I always assume, to begin with, that even if I don't agree or understand the note, that they're pointing towards something that's not working. And that, you know, in acting, you know, the joke among actors is like, as people give you a very involved psychological you know, perhaps, it, not you, <laughs> director, <laughs> who goes on and on about the psychology and you say, do you just want it faster? Is that what you yes, right. yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So sometimes it's that and you think, oh, they just want it to be shorter, I think, you know. Or, so you try to find the best version. Right. Uh, hopefully you're in business with people you want to make the same movie. Hopefully you've already had that conversation. Diving into those worlds, let's say diving into Dickens or diving into the 1950s or diving into you know Canadian theater in the 60s, um, have you felt that that's carried over to other projects or did it have an effect as you move forward, even just being inspired maybe by those writers? Well, I miss Dickens because I worked on it for eight years. Wow. And, uh, my children used to talk about my boyfriend, Charles Dickens. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little in mourning. Yeah. It's certainly, um, when you get to work on something great, you know, when you in those in the case of Anne and working on material by Charles Dickens, it was, or I've adopted a Chekhov in the theater. It's a tremendous privilege to kind of hang out with great writers and sort of try to think how they do what they do and take take it apart. So uh, I certainly feel that I've learned a lot from spending time in the company of those writers, mm. for sure. Yeah. Linwood, did writing for screen 
has that influenced some of your novel writing or other writing that you do? Did that did that affect it? I don't think so. I think that, that for the very beginning, like I said, when I was a kid, I was addicted to television and wanted to be writing TV scripts as a, as a child. And so all the books that I've done up to the point where I've now started doing adaptations, they all played out in my head as if they were a movie. So I'm, you know, even when I'm you know, writing in the long form, I'm seeing it as if it were on a screen. So. So I don't think that the books that I have done since I've been dabbling in doing adaptations has changed anything. Um, but uh, I've always just seen everything I do. I see it's it's playing out like it's on a screen. Mm. It still is. Great, Arturo. Do you find that working on the narrative feature and adapting the play has that you know changed things or affected you in a way as you move forward on other projects? Um, not necessarily that, but um, I think cemented more uh, the experiments we made with the Dora Boy as far as um, using documentary as a tool to write. So the new project that I'm working on is actually documentary, but using the dialogue that we get from the documentary subjects and then fictionalizing that into a fiction. Oh. So. Um, that kind of like started with the door boy and we're very excited to, to see how this works for the new project. Oh great, that sounds exciting. Mm -hmm. And uh, what other projects are you looking forward to? I'd love to hear what you're up to or what's exciting that you're working on now. Well right now I'm, um, I'm working on adapting what I call my Promise Falls trilogy which is the novels Broken Promise Far From True and the 23 for uh, a series working with E1 and a Canadian network on that. So we're, we're in that in development stage where you think, will it really happen or will it not? But I'll, I'll be, it's, the, it's a thing I'll be, uh, I'm very heavily involved in, which is great, and I'll be writing the pilot and so forth. So that's, that's going on at the moment. We'll, and we'll see what, uh, what happens with that soon, I think. Oh, great, exciting. Uh, and I'm working on a couple of adaptations, actually. One is of a series of novels um, by Alan Bradley about an 11-year-old female detective in England in the 50s, the Flavia de Luce series. Oh, yeah. And I'm also working, uh, returning to an adaptation that I've been working on again. These things sometimes take time, but of a wonderful George Bowery novel called Caprice, which is a Western Again with a female heroine set in the interior of BC in the end of the 19th century. So both quite different. Wow, and, are, and you're working on them at the same time, so you go from one world to the other? Kind of, like you hand one in and wait for notes and go to the other one, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. how it kind of works. Right, yeah, that sounds fun though. It sounds like a, mm, an adventure. Very, sure. very, very fun. fun, yeah. Great, thanks, and Arturo, you're working on this documentary uh, project? It is, it's yeah. a hybrid, it's more fiction. It's um, basically real news breeding fake stories. Mm. Huh. So wow. it all, each series starts with some real news and then that piece of news affects a character that triggers into a story. Hmm. Interesting. And it's a series? <laughs> like an episodic? It's not episodic. They're it's standalone. Okay. But the, the news are real and they have to happen three months from the story. So it's also like working really fast, like a line production. So when the TV show, the series comes out, the news is still fresh in your head. Mm. Wow. Just three months and then you see what, how that news affected these characters. Oh, neat. 
Yeah, let me see if it works. <laughs> yeah, I like the experiment yeah, of it. Yeah, it's fun. That's exciting. Uh, well, I look forward to seeing all of these as they, you know, happen. I'm going to say they're going to happen because at this point, <laughs> yeah, why not? <laughs> why um, not? Why not? Um, I want to say thank you so much to all three of you for being here, thank for you. having this thank conversation, you. for inspiring us with the stories of your writing and um, and I want to say thank you to everyone who tuned in and who's listening. Um, it's been a great pleasure to facilitate the conversation and to talk about adapting screenplays. Uh, you can see all of these wonderful projects that we discussed on the internet on a streaming site near you. We will post the addresses and the destinations for you below this video so you can check them out. Thank you so much for joining us. You can see every episode of the Highball Master Shot right here on HighballTV.com. Thanks and see you soon.